You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin Story Machine podcast, an exclusive limited series exploring diverse aspects of children's literature. My name is Sinead Moriarty and I specialise in children's literature and for the last couple of years I've been working with the School of English at Trinity College Dublin including getting the chance to teach on their MPhil in children's literature and today what we're going to be doing is talking about landscape and the environment in children's books and I'm joined by some amazing students uh, from the MPhil. Hello, my name is Tegan and in my spare time I run an Irish language arts and culture blog called Showed where I review books, music and films and share news on Irish language creative opportunities. And my thesis for the MPhil programme will explore the relationship between youth subcultures and teenage identity in the young adult works of S.E. Hinton. Hi, so my name is Kira. I'm the editor of Childlike. Um, it's a journal kind of exploring all aspects of childhood experience. My research centres around child agency and narratives of neglect and abuse. Hi, my name's Eleanor. Prior to moving to Dublin, I worked in a greenhouse in Montreal, and my dissertation will focus on children's literature, first novels, and the immigration experience. Hi, my name is Eden. I came to Ireland from Israel, where I was a high school teacher. And in my dissertation, I will look at the concept of time in children's literature. So today, as I've said, we're going to be talking about landscape and the environment in children's literature. And so often when we think about landscape, we think about it as kind of the backdrop against which things happen. But really, landscape is so central to the plot. And this is particularly true in books that have environmental messages. So in those kind of books, often the landscapes become the main theme. And, you know, the books are all about how we imagine our place in the world, how we imagine the other animals that we share the world with. So today we're going to be thinking about the ways that we imagine landscapes in books for children, you know, how we think about our relationships with the world around us. And because while there are so many more and more books today that urge children to protect the world around them, there are also lots of books that kind of imply that the world is this big scary place that humans still need to control. Yeah, I think you're right there. Like the world's really become this frightening place that um, whenever you look at the figures, like it's just getting worse and worse. Like human consumption of the Earth's natural resources has more than tripled between 1970 and 2015, according to the World Count. And if we're not careful, if we don't make significant changes, the use of our natural resources is expected to continue growing. And given this data, it's just so important that the literature for children is responding to the crisis and providing alternative solutions for these environmental protection issues. Like an fact that really panicked me, I think, during my research was that only half of these forests that originally covered the earth remain today. So only a fifth of these remain undisturbed from human like inhabitation and like industry, which is just crazy. Yeah, there's so many, so many really disturbing facts. You know, I, I'm kind of obsessed with the Antarctic. And when you look at some of the change that's happening there, it's it's really scary. So like, yeah, Kira, I know that this is something you're really interested in, you know, and especially this question of how do we really feel about our environments and how does that kind of seep out uh, in the books that we read or write for children? Yeah, I've definitely been thinking about this question a lot over the last few years. Um, and as the like news just continues like to be plagued by weekly ecological disasters like earthquakes and droughts and forest fires, like I don't know about anyone else, but like I obsess about those documentaries like Seaspiracy and Cowspiracy for weeks after I've watched them. Like then this urgent call for action on climate change kind of echoes throughout mass media. Like it's really hard to know what you're supposed to feel and what you're supposed to do when you're faced with all this. 
It's like in the face of this like terrifying ecological crisis, like the question that's being asked appears to me to be like, do we fear the loss of our land enough to save it or do we not love it enough? Like, have we enough time left or are we just prolonging this inevitable doom? And like, when will we truly be out of the woods? So in 2020, Brooke Smith released this picture book called The Keeper of Wild Words. And in the author's note at the back, she explained how she was kind of inspired to create this text about passing knowledge of like the natural world to younger generations. Um, and she explains that she was like really shocked to find that Oxford Dictionary had cut out over 100 words pertaining to nature in order to replace them with words that were kind of deemed more commonly used by children today. That were words like drought, conflict, cautionary tale. And for me, like it's just a really strange world to be in where creep and chat room have more relevance for children than apricot and dandelion <laughs> and willow, like all these kind of softer words. Like it's just so dangerous. This seems like a really dangerous circle to be living in for kids and one that like isn't really inherently tied to nature anymore. It's like if you're like me, like you'll meet all of that dread and fear about the future trolling through the internet, which is exactly what it tells me I shouldn't be doing. <laughs> So one of my favorite places is like looking through search and rescue officers, like unexplained mysteries on Reddit, which like, it's just, I, like, I know they're not real, but I love them. I love them so much. And like over the course of this year, while studying the environment and children's literature, there's just like this pervasive theme that keeps occurring to me while I read these that I'd never really noticed before. This like fear of the woods and like a real like terror about children being in the woods. Um, so like, I'll just explain like the current like plots of these stories. Is that like a search and rescue officer gets a call about a child who's gone missing while they're hiking through the woods. Um, and while they're searching, they always come across some like startling and impossible evidence. Like there'll be like a hairband or a shoe or something like up really high in the tree or like a different child witness will see like a hairy and faceless like kidnapper. And like most of the time they're just baffled by this evidence. Like there's never any explanations. And, like for me, like I find that these like creepypastas, like they kind of position the woods as like a constant threatening setting for kids. And that there's this, this full of unknowable threats, like terrifying unknowable threats. And like, I don't know, for me, I keep seeing it as like a kind of new age Hans, like Hansel and Gretel or like Red Riding Hood, but really creepy. Like there's this, like you step off the trail and you're going to be snatched kind of idea about the woods. I'm like, I love that it's this personification of the woods that's terrifying, but it brings up these really interesting issues about how do you consider your environment? How do you feel about them? When we're the one attacking the woods, like we're the ones who took four fifths of them away. <laughs> yeah, right. And so we imagine ourselves in this kind of battle with nature. And so nature becomes this thing we have to conquer and control. Like if you think about the number of the, the ways that we talk about, like climbing mountains, like, oh, I've conquered this or that. And it's like, no, you just went up and down. Like So <laughs> so then I suppose, Kira, what do you think might be the consequence of these kinds of ideas about landscape and wilderness? Well, some people think that there are like really serious consequences about the lack of nature or like lack of connection with nature. Robert Louv wrote this book in 2005 that was called The Last Child of the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. And the text sparked a really popular debate about children's health and the connection of like health to nature, or maybe like the lack thereof, like of your health. Um, and they kind of considered that like being a part of nature is like an essential part of your well-being. So the book was really acclaimed by nature enthusiasts and woodland conservationists, but its ideas kind of taken to be used in scouts and like all of these kind of things across America. Um, but it had its problems, like it has its problems. I won't like stand by Louvre and be like, he's the best guy for this. Um, like he kind of considered it not to be like a medical condition of having nature deficit disorder, but more like a way of describing 
what children are losing when they lose connections with nature, which I think you could do in a very different way, more effectively. So he kind of describes the symptoms being diminished use of the senses, attention difficulties, like higher rates of physical and emotional illnesses. Um, and like obviously it's stemming from connected to ADHD and how he discusses it. But he argues quite problematically, in my opinion, that nature therapy, like playing in nature, is nature's Ritalin. I could reduce ADHD symptoms, which I don't know. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's kind of dangerous territory to get into, yeah. like to try and liken it to, to very specific conditions like that. Um, you know, but say, so what is his suggestion then? What does he think we can do to address like this idea of nature, atten- nature deficit disorder? Yeah. So like there are really positive things he says, like the real key parts of his things is about encouraging children to spend unstructured time outdoors, engaging with nature, like by playing just trying to remedy that detachment he sees being so detrimental to the experience of childhood and the formation of a person. So, however, though, like you can imagine, critics have argued like his ideas about childhood and nature don't consider any cultural or social differences. And like in recent discourses, there's been this really important move away from human-centered thinking about the environment, this kind of hope to establish ourselves in the nature rather than like against or on top of, like where we can have a more respectful engagement with our environment. So critics of Louvre kind of argue that his ideas continue that human-centered approach that's ultimately reductive. So in other words, like his approach for children to name and understand nature through natural science limits them because it doesn't really readily apply across class barriers or culture. And he's also been like criticized for romanticizing the child in nature as though like all like children are just one homogenous group who meet nature with open arms, like if given the right guidance, which can be very problematic. So it kind of seems like we're seeing the natural world as something we should be conquering and taming and something that's very dangerous and the opposite of human civilization, while at the same time, like having come to see the wilderness and nature is vital to our well-being and to our future. So this debate about nature deficit disorder, and I like admit a very strange connection to Reddit's popular threads um, about the woods, it kind of brings us back to this question that we started with, like, how are we supposed to feel about wild places and where do we position children in relation to wild spaces? that were full of unknowables and uncontrollable things. Like, how do you foster a love of nature in our children? And how, how is it impossible to do so? Or why is it important to do so? Um, great stuff, Kira. I've been thinking about these questions too. And I think the way we should view the world and nature is by looking at its two aspects. Like, On one hand, we should love and respect nature. And on the other hand, we should appreciate its strength and acknowledge the dangers it can pose. So if I had to sum it in one word, I think it would be respect. And I believe the best uh, that the best way to get children to love and respect nature is by getting them physically involved with nature and perhaps assigning them a project that will cultivate this sense of responsibility to it. Yeah, I totally agree with you there, Eden. I think children's books are really excellent mediums through which children can learn this respect and to kind of discover their place in the world, both in society and in their natural environments. And as Kira said, our understanding of the natural world can often feel quite conflicting. And I think that this is an issue which environmental children's books have handled really well through finding the right balance between humanity's current, almost polar understandings of the natural world. And there's no doubt that the world can sometimes be a dangerous place. But as many environmental children's books explain, this doesn't mean that we must conquer and tame it. You know, by learning about the nature around us and 
how we can safely enjoy our natural environments. We can gain an understanding of how to respectfully live with our natural world as opposed to against it. And there are plenty of children's books out there that offer this type of comprehensive understanding to children and ultimately nurture a connection with the environment within children that is kind of built upon a great self-awareness of their place on planet Earth. Right. I think that's such an interesting point, Tegan. So like, how do you think, like, what are the ways that books can help us to be more environmentally conscious? Or particularly, I suppose, how can they help children to learn that kind of love of the environment so that they might care enough to protect it? So I think children's books are great for taking popular outlooks and opinions on the environment and revealing how problematic it is to see the world in such ways. And one particular outlook, which we as children's literature students are constantly looking at, is how we humans position ourselves in relation to the natural world and what roles we imagine for ourselves within nature. So, for example, if you can imagine yourself standing on the edge of a forest full of wild deer or maybe near a lake or even at the foot of a great big snow-capped mountain range, what us landscape and children's literature students are interested in asking is how do you feel in this place or what actions do you want to take in this environment? So maybe you simply want to walk through the forest or swim in the lake or maybe even go for a hike in the mountains. Or many people nowadays might see the space for a prime piece of real estate within the forest should the trees be cut down and a luxury home built in their place. Some others might see the surroundings maybe as a great place to hunt uh, deer or go fishing. So there are lots of different actions uh, that we can take in these environments. But what we and environmental children's authors would urge people is to always be aware of the consequences of your actions in the natural world. So while these controlling and kind of dominant acts of flattening the forest and hunting native animal species that I mentioned are undeniably a lot more harmful to the environment than walking through a forest or hiking in the mountains, it's still important to note that in going swimming in lakes or hiking mountains, like Kira was saying, we can often wrongly assume that we humans are in control of these natural environments. And we tend to assume that we can successfully and safely navigate our way through these environments with a minimal understanding of our surroundings. But this is often very untrue and can uh, often end with disastrous consequences. And The Fate of Fausto by Oliver Jeffers is an excellent picture book that explores and kind of parodies this absurd belief that humans exert complete control over our natural environments. So the story starts off with the line, there once was a man who believed he owned everything and set out to survey what was his. And throughout the book, this man known as Fausto marches about shouting, you are mine at various things, such as a flower, a sheep, a tree, a lake and a mountain. And each yields to his control and some quicker than others. But of course, all this was not enough for Fausto, who sets out uh, on a boat to conquer the sea. See, you are mine, he shouts, to which the sea replies, you do not own me. So Fausto goes on to protest this, arguing that the sea's point that Fausto cannot own it because he doesn't love it and that he doesn't love the sea because he doesn't understand it. But Fausto insists that he will bend the sea to his will by stamping his foot and shaking his fist and foolishly attempts to do so on the surface of the water. And unable to swim, Fausto uh, disappears from view, his end unspecified, but I'm sure we can all imagine what has happened. And in the end, the mountain, the sea, the lake, the sheep, the tree and the flower all go back to their business, carrying on as before, which all kind of 
serves to drive home the point that the human ego really is no match for nature. And I think that the fate of Fausto, it really it interestingly prompts us to consider how problematic it is that we as humans tend to subscribe to the idea that we are the pinnacle of life on Earth when really everything around us in our natural environments reveals the opposite to be true. So the sea's question of Fausto asking how he can love all these elements of the natural world which he claims to own when he does not understand them also raises the important point that if we claim to truly love and respect our natural environments, then we should commit to learning about them and understanding their complex ways in a manner that puts humanity at a par with the natural world as opposed to above it. Yeah, I think it's so great that you're bringing up Jeffers. He's such a wonderful artist, like Northern Irish um, illustrator and author. And his work is more and more focused on the environment. He's had some um, great environmentally themed picture books for children, right, hasn't he? Yeah, so a lot of his recent work has had environmental themes in different ways. So like his 2012 book, This Moose Belongs to Me. And this picture book is another great exploration of how absurd it is to claim ownership over our natural environments. But I think this one does so on a, a much tamer scale than that of The Fate of Fausto. So This Moose Belongs to Me, however, is kind of more concerned with humanity's efforts to domesticate and claim ownership over wild animals than it is with the ownership of landscape and flora. So in this picture book, we hear the story of a boy called Wilfred who claims to own a moose who he has named Marcel. And throughout, Wilfred tries his utmost to domesticate Marcel, even attempting to implement rules that the moose must follow, uh, which mostly restrict Marcel to roles of servitude, such as that of a butler, a shelter from the rain, and even an apple retriever. And one day, while Wilfred is on a walk with Marcel, he is most displeased to find that an old woman claims to own Marcel too. Only to her, the moose is known as Rodrigo. And Wilfred runs away, getting tangled uh, in the string which he was using to lead his way home uh, through the forest. And he is eventually rescued, but uh, unintentionally by Marcel, the moose, who scoops Wilfred up with his antlers as he bends to eat an apple. And Wilfred finally admits that he could never truly own a moose, but nevertheless makes a compromise with the moose, formerly known as Marcel, which states that he should follow um, all of Wilfred's rules whenever it suits him. And I think the messages of both of these uh, Oliver Jeffers books translate very well to the real world. And the stories themselves really remind me uh, of some observations I've had um, while I've been uh, on some hiking trips uh, in Glendalough National Park or in the Wicklow Mountains, where, like the fate of Fausto, there is a need for caution while exploring the natural environment. and like this moose belongs to me, there is a definite need to respect the wildness of the deer, the goats and the sheep that scale the sides of these mountains in these places. And I just think it's incredible that while we, like Wilfred, uh, might need trail markers to guide us over these mountains, these animals can just effortlessly navigate the steepest of landscapes. And to think that such intelligent wild animals should and can be bent to our will and domesticated is as Oliver Jeffers notes, ridiculous, but more importantly, it's incredibly damaging to our wildlife. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I love so much about Jeffers' work and what makes it so amazing is that he's able to convey all these really complex ideas. Like we can and have talked about his work for like hours, um, but he's able to do that in really short, largely visual texts. 
that don't have lots of you know written words in them uh, so I think it just shows how authors can create environmental literature even for the really youngest readers but maybe one thing that Jeffers books don't have um, is a particular kind of what we might call like a call to action. So they don't explicitly tell their readers what they can do or should be doing to address environmental issues. And do you think this kind of explicit advice is necessary in, in picture books or in children's environmental literature? Absolutely. I think that kind of urgent action is definitely needed. And I think picture books and children's literature can definitely offer more direct solutions to this crisis that's just so multifaceted. Right, that's such an interesting uh, point, Eleanor, and it taps into some of the larger questions around environmental decline and our kind of global response to this crisis, I suppose. Looking at children's books about the environment really prompts a lot of these questions, like what is the language and imagery of crisis and what calls us to action? whose definition generates that action, and what are the emotional, political, and social investments we have in that action. So if crisis means bold and immediate action, like executive orders, national addresses, why hasn't this action necessarily been as immediate as we would have want concerning the environmental crisis? And how are children themselves positioned in these conversations? I think that's such an important point, particularly because children are, you know, uh, more and more at the centre of these debates, um, and uh, rightly so. Um, so then, what do you think are some of the most important things for us to focus on? And I suppose as people who are interested in children's books, you know, how can children's books help in this? I feel like at its core, transformative action requires clarity. And the environmental crisis, despite the severity of its global impact, has been relatively ignored in some ways, I think, due to the confusion regarding how we position ourselves locally. When I think about sustainability, I tend to think about generations and how we can meet the needs of the present without compromising the needs of the future. And books and stories are often the meeting place for these conversations to take place. When we think of the future, we're also thinking about the legacies we may inherit from the past. And I think intergenerational equity requires these conversations, you know, it requires justice between generations and the need to act, think and care responsibly, which I think begins with our storytelling practices. I find this like whole point of like intergenerational action just so interesting because it's like oftentimes like it has like the reading of the child's book is often done by the adult to the child at the start and like it's hard for me, I guess, to understand, like, how do children fit in the conversation about like, climate change when you're young? And, like, there's not a lot of agency and you don't control the media and you're not, like, the writer of these books. How do children find a way to connect? I think children, they definitely are active participants in the worlds that they live in. And they play a very important role in helping to build the sustainable futures that we hope for. And like you said, you know, the books that children read can help teach them how to create that change and be a part of that change. One of the many things that children's literature can do is really give children that space and the information they need to feel empowered. And a part of this, like you said, is about agency, right? So if we're defining agency as that ability to feel like we can make that change, I want to share this definition of agency that I find very useful and uh, go something like this. So individual agency is when a person acts on their own behalf, whereas proxy agency is when an individual acts on behalf of someone else. Collective agency occurs when people act together, such as a social movement. So over the last few months, we've also been talking a lot about what kind of leadership and heroism was presented 
in environmental children's books. And two of the books that stood out in our discussions were Nicola Davies's The Promise and Jen Cullerton Johnson and Sonia Lynn Sadler's Seeds of Change. Nicola Davies's The Promise is an award-winning parable-like narrative that tells the story of a young girl who tries to steal an old woman's handbag one night in a nondescript city that appears mean and gray. The old woman, however, will only give away her bag in exchange for a promise that the young girl will plant the seeds. As the young girl soon realizes, she holds a forest in her arms and her heart is changed. She goes on to plant trees and transform cities into spaces of kindness, beauty, and compassion. The book ends with another young thief who ultimately makes the same promise, implying a cyclical kind of change. The book implies that with each individual change of heart and each individual action, societies and communities can transform. Seeds of Change is also concerned with sustainability, also with planting seeds and planting trees. But the narrative takes less of an allegorical approach and focuses more on the community efforts while celebrating the remarkable achievements of Wangari Maathai. As a young girl in Kenya, Wangari Maathai was taught to respect and care for nature. She was one of the first in her community to attend school and to go on to university, where she excelled in science and blazed a trail across Kenya, using her knowledge and compassion to help save the land one tree at a time. I think it's important for children to learn about those who have made a difference in the world and to provide them with role models they can look up to. Oftentimes, children learn about history and science through the literature they read. So having books available to them that are nonfiction are just as important to not only provide an educational experience, but also to provide children with a real world perspective. Right. Yeah. And I, like, I think the books that you mentioned, they're so great, especially Seeds of Change for me. I think it's really important that books, you know, celebrate people like Matai. I think, you know, she's such a, a great role model and it's it's really important to to note the work of people like her in places like Kenya who are kind of really pushing forward um, uh, the, the work around uh, addressing the ecological crisis. So, but what was it about this book and, and about The Promise? What was it about these books that kind of stood out for you as either good or bad? The Promise was really interesting because on one end, it did have a very positive message about the small actions making big differences. But one of the potential downsides of this book is its potential investments in the individual hero figure. So the problem with having these individual heroes is that there's a risk that it can create an unrealistic expectation and emphasis on individualism. Individualism prioritizes the individual, whereas holism values the input of an entire community without putting one person on a pedestal. While each of our individual actions do matter, and the figure of the child hero or the eco warrior can certainly help to empower children and highlight children's agency and their ability to create positive change, it's also important to interrogate what our models for heroism are, and we have to make sure these so-called hero models and heroic qualities aren't embedded in damaging ideologies that may surround our conventional hero figures, such as the trope of you know, the macho superhero or that conventional storyline where the hero goes on a quest and has to act like a savior on behalf of the earth or on behalf of a group of people, and in the process ends up diminishing the voices of local communities when really we should focus on empowering the voices of communities and local initiatives. Because when we work together, we're more capable of creating long-lasting change. And we are ultimately a part of networks of communities and aren't isolated individuals, even though it might feel like that at times, especially during the pandemic. In The Promise, we see that city being transformed by cycles of individual action. 
So on one end, it's promoting activism, yet the responsibility of planting the seeds is shared. It's not one person who holds the seeds. It is, in fact, all of us. The girls' actions do bring the community together, that's for sure. But we wanted to see a story in which the promise was not merely passed on from one person to the next, but one in which the promise could be a shared promise, a shared commitment, in which all of us together hold and share the forest in our arms. However, I do think this book is a wonderful way to get the conversation started, to think about individual efforts and collective responsibilities, and to ask ourselves, what kinds of qualities do we assume with heroism? And what kind of qualities do we associate with leadership? Right, right. And then what about Seeds of Change? What stood out about that for you? I loved Seeds of Change because of its ability to showcase and celebrate the achievements of a very important individual, Wangari Matai. And she was born in April 1940, and she fought the vicious cycle of environmental degradation. She founded the Green Belt Movement in 1977, focusing on poverty reduction and environmental conservation. A recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in 2004, she made a tremendous impact on the world. In her own words, through the Green Belt Movement, we have helped young people get involved in environmental activities. We have tried to instill in them the idea that protecting the environment is not just a pleasure, but also a duty. One of the strengths of this book is its ability to provide that educational experience while positioning Matai's involvement within a network of communities which I think is a strong leadership model to share with children and people of all ages. As we deconstruct the hero model in preference of a collective leadership model, we're able to break down those binaries and establish integrated relationships with each other and with the environment. I'd like to see this more in the books that we read. Leadership does not have to be the loudest voice in the room. To be a hero is to work together, like Mathai did, because... When we work together, we're all heroes. It's not just one person who gets to be that hero. And I'd like children to know that we're all leaders together. Yeah, I think that, yeah, that's such an important message for children's books to teach, you know, and I think that we see with the leaders of environmental movements today, they're only really successful if they can take people along with them and inspire collective action. And often children are playing a really important role in those movements too. Right. And we can see that with people like Greta Thunberg. In 2019, she was in Montreal leading one of the climate marches, taking a stand against all the ways that adults, politicians and policymakers had failed us and the environment. And I remember I participated in that march that day. And I remember she said, uh, to quote Thunberg herself, we're not in school today. You're not at work today because this is an emergency. Some would say we are wasting lesson time. We say we're changing the world so that when we're older, we will be able to look at our children in the eyes and say we did everything we could back then. However, it's important to mention that the island of Montreal, Jachage, has long served as a site of meeting and exchange amongst many First Nations. So before Thunberg, there has and continues to be numerous grassroots and collective action from Indigenous communities who have a long-standing custodianship of the land. So I want us to think about now what we mean by call to action, whose voices are prioritized and whose voices go unheard. Let's try to take a stand with education now, not against it, and find ways to honor everything that education can provide. I want to take a moment as well to thank our teachers who have put significant effort, especially but not only during this health crisis, to ensure children and youth have access to quality learning. And I also want to take a moment to thank students too, who have been agents for their own learning inside and outside of classrooms, through the books they read and the stories they tell. 
we're all learning on this journey and children's literature is social justice work. These stories are important and they can play a part in creating the sustainable future that we really need. Yeah, like I totally agree with that. And I think probably as people in general, if if we are, you know, if we're working in children's literature, if we're studying children's literature, we're really invested in the power, the positive power of children's books. But at the same time, it can sometimes feel like a bit of a contradiction too. Like, how can we possibly be helping the environment by creating books when we have to use natural resources to, to make those books and when the impact of the books can be sometimes hard to gauge? So I suppose maybe the question is, how can we make sure that these books that might have amazing environmental themes, how can we make sure that they actually do go on to make a difference? Eden, I know that you've been thinking about these kind of bigger questions, you know, those kind of tangible questions a lot too recently, right? Yeah, because the word as we remember it from our childhood is gone. And in answer to that question, what are we doing by reading children's environmental texts? How can this help? What I would say is that books can illuminate environmental issues and propose strategies and actions that we can take in order to make a change. And children's environmental literature has a long-lasting impact because it addresses children's emotions and appeals to their intellect. Now there are lots of critics uh, working in children's literature and in environmental education. And so lots of them are focusing on these questions, asking how we can really ensure that environmental books for children actually make a difference. And one of the ways people talk about is through connecting the books with actions. So let's talk about actions. Um, Greta Gard is a critic who has written about children's environmental literature, and she encourages us all to act. She gives examples of simple things that can be done in a classroom setting, such as using the other side of a used paper in class. And she calls for teaching about in and through the social and natural environment, which in short means involve children and engage them with the social and natural environment as much as possible. This is a very practical approach that teachers and caregivers can use to increase the impact of children's environmental books and possibly to create a better future. Because these texts have the capacity to present current environmental issues and what caused them while also showing a possible way to respond to these issues. And combining this with being physically in the natural environment enables children to reconnect and assess their relationship with it. And this can be achieved by teaching children outside of the classroom and going to a park, into the streams, into the woods, so they could see and feel. And teachers can also adapt the class assignments and projects and get children involved to create this strong connection because unfortunately, it's not enough to just talk about it. Yeah, I think yeah, it's really nice to have that connection so that we think, OK, we can use these books and they can connect to practical action so that they can make kids think about the wider issues. But they can also give a kind of model for what you might do practically as an individual when we can often feel really powerless in terms of these crises. Um, so is there one book that you think might work really well? Say if there's a teacher is listening or if there's a parent who really wants to um, talk about these kinds of issues with their kids. Is there a book you'd recommend? Yeah, so one great example is Belonging by Jeannie Baker. 
uh, it, it's a wonderful wordless picture book that on every page of the book, we see a picture of the same window looking out over the front yard and the streetscape. And it shows how Tracy, the main character, together with the community, gradually changes the urban environment to a greener one. And with this book, children can learn about the importance of nature and the impact of a small scale change that starts with one individual in their private garden. And there are so many ways to engage with this book. It can be read as a game, like to spot the differences in each picture. And children should also be encouraged to think about questions such as which front yard would you prefer to have, the one at the beginning or the one at the end? What is the impact of nature on the street and on the people that live there? Do we need to change our behaviors? And if so, what does this book suggest we do? And children can look outside their class window or their bedroom and, or living room window and think of ways to change what they see for the better. They can pick up trash, they can plant, they can paint over disturbing graffiti and so on. And they can take a before and after picture and present the process in class. Or they can create a garden in the schoolyard where they plant some seeds or plants and take care of it during the year. That's such amazing ideas. And it's such a lovely book, like a belonging, such a lovely book. So it's really nice to hear your ideas. And I think that's so practical. Like people could just take those ideas and use them right in classrooms. And particularly because it's a wordless picture book, you know, that, that can be used with all ages, you know, and it's it's not dependent either on sharing a, a common um, language as well. So it, it has loads of potential. And it really just shows how useful books can be. And that there is this really rich literature that's available for children that deals with environmental themes. So, you know, sometimes I think we can think that children's environmental literature is all just really boring books about recycling, um, but it's not. So if you guys were to recommend some books for anyone listening now to go out and buy or borrow, what would they be? I would definitely recommend Belonging by Ginny Baker that was published in 2004 and Old Enough to Save the Planet by Lowell Kirby, which was published actually last February in 2021. I'd recommend Seeds of Change, published in 2010. And for those of us who have an affinity for poetry, I definitely recommend Margarita Engel's Forest World, which was published in 2017. Um, for all ages, I would highly recommend The Lost Words by Robert McFarlane and Jackie Morris, published in 2017. And for young adult readers, I would highly recommend Diary of a Young Naturalist by Dara McAnulty that was published in 2020. I would definitely recommend The Keeper of Wild Words that I mentioned earlier by Brooke Smith and illustrated by Madeleine Cloper. And that was from 2020. Delhi. So lots of great recommendations there. So hopefully we've inspired people to, to go out, to buy the books, to borrow the books, to request them from their local libraries, or to maybe even if you're working in a school, to stock them in your school libraries. So uh, thank you guys all so much. You know, thank you to Eleanor, Kira, Eden and Tegan um, for sharing all your thoughts with us. And uh, thank you for listening. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council Ireland. To learn more, visit www.ilfdublin.com.